Support for AHLA comes from Clearwater, the leading provider of enterprise cyber risk management and HIPAA compliance software and services for healthcare organizations, including health systems, physician groups, and health IT companies. Their solutions include their proprietary software as a service-based platform, IRM Pro, which helps organizations manage cyber risk and HIPAA compliance across the enterprise, and advisory support from their deep team of information security experts. For more information, visit clearwatercompliance.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another AHLA Speaking of Health Law podcast. My name is John Moore. I'm the Chief Risk Officer and Senior Vice President of Consulting Services at Clearwater. We provide cybersecurity, cyber risk management, and compliance services across the healthcare industry. And with me today, I have Robert Kontrowitz. And uh, Rob, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Uh uh, I'm, my name is Rob, Rob Kantrowitz. Uh, I'm uh, an associate here at Kirkland and Ellis in the, in the New York office, and uh, I specialize in uh, healthcare uh, mergers and acquisitions. Great. And so Rob and I, uh, we recently had an opportunity to present at an AHLA conference talking about uh, health apps and the uh, legal framework applicable to health apps. I was hoping, uh, Rob, we could talk a little bit about that again today, if that's okay with you. Uh, I'd love to. All right. Uh, so I, you know, I threw out that term uh, health apps and, and that's become a, a, a broader and perhaps more difficult uh, category to, to talk about, but I'll do my best sort of to set the stage for, for folks when I'm, when we're referencing health apps, that can mean a, a number of different things. Uh, some typical categories, and I'll, I'll say categories, however, these are getting sort of merged and blended over time, but things like clinical and, and diagnostic assistance, remote monitoring type of apps, particularly in telehealth situations, clinical reference apps uh, that providers in particular might use, uh, productivity apps, healthy lifestyle uh, type of, of applications now that are becoming more and more common um, for the in the consumer market. Uh, so there's all these different sorts of, of uh uh, applications out there related to healthcare, uh, fitness, wellness type of things that are falling into these categories. And again, those categories are starting to, to merge over time, but typically the data that would be processed by this type of app would include assorted identifying information. That would be the, the, your user contact information, usernames, passwords, all the typical stuff that we have in associated with applications and using applications, medical history information, uh, potentially, certainly when we're talking about applications that are uh, pulling in medical records in particular, that kind of information, diet, fitness history, um, sensors that track our movement and those types of things uh, like the, the Fitbits and other uh, uh, applications and things that are out there potentially financial information that we're pulling in, in particular from, from payer type of organizations, uh, other device information too, that, you know, we have, uh, particularly when we're running these things on a phone, there's often a unique identifier, GPS location, history, IP address, et cetera. And, and another thing which we'll talk a little bit about is um, to a certain extent, it, 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 what rules are applicable are dependent on the source of that application. And by source, I mean, from whom has the user obtained it? Um, in some cases, for example, that might be from their provider. Uh, you go to your provider's website and you, and you download or access an application, uh, perhaps with your patient records and that kind of thing. Um, payers oftentimes will have a similar portal type of, of situation that allows access to your uh, insurance information. Um, 
third party uh, third parties as well. Sometimes those are business acting as business associates on the part of providers, or it may just be health app developers themselves that that are not acting in the capacity of a of a business associate. And of course, there's medical device suppliers and uh, as well. And we'll talk a bit about that. And those categories again can overlap. So that's that's what we're talking about. At least Rob, if it's okay with you, that's how I'm going to define um, what we're talking about today. And uh, and so let's let's get to it. Um, before we we jump into kind of the legal framework, Rob, you know, given your your area of, of expertise and your insight into kind of what's going on out there, in particular around transactions, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening in the industry in regard to health apps and investment, et cetera, in that area right now? Got it. Yeah, yeah, uh, that that works. Uh, I appreciate the the background for for our audience here. Uh, I think that's that's helpful context. So I think it's probably no surprise that health app development has seen tremendous growth over the past decade or so. And the metrics speak for themselves. I've seen reports showing that in, you know, around 2015, 50% of, of doctors said they use these mobile health apps. Uh, and I believe for the past few years now, the, the usage numbers in terms of individuals has almost doubled uh, year over year. And in last year, you could find more than 350,000 digital health apps available at the different app stores. And I think I, I saw the number in 2021, the, the global health apps market size was valued at almost $40 billion. So this is you know pretty substantial. And, and so seeing all this production and use, right? I mean, you, you see that there's obviously demand, right? So uh, the production and valuation of this sector wouldn't be so high if there wasn't. Uh, and I think what's driving this demand is, is a few things, uh, not to state the obvious, but some of this growth can be uh, attributed to just the general smartphone adoption, right? Uh, the, the flip phone days weren't that long ago. I mean, I think right, the first iPhone was only released in 2007. Uh, and without the smartphone and the, the increased functionality we all see today on our, on our devices, uh, you don't really get the health apps and or this growth that we've seen in their adoption and uh, you know creation. Uh, but I think the more recent explosion has been the general awareness of these apps, uh, an interest in self-care and getting a better understanding of one's well-being. Uh, and I think just the general acceptance and encouragement from the uh, medical community. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, a good percentage of, of doctors use these things and then tell their patients uh, to use the apps. Uh, another factor is that many of these apps are, are tied to wearables and uh, we've seen the, gr the growth in wearables uh, over these recent years. And, and when I say wearables, I mean, for example, like smartwatches, uh, certain clothes, glasses, and other types of sen sensors. So I think we've seen, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of wearables were shipped in, in, I think, the year 2020 and 2021. So these are, you know, also tied to, to the health apps. And we'll, and we'll go into that uh, uh, perhaps perhaps later in some more detail, but just to stick with the, the growth aspect here, uh, there's some functionality uh, that's gotten better too. And we, we've seen that smartwatches, you know, which everyone knows they, you know, they can track steps, heart rate and calories, right? But now there, there's some wearables that allow diabetes patients to reach their blood glucose levels uh, through an app on their phones and then, you know, connects to a sensor that's attached to their bodies. So obviously the, you know, the, the increase in this functionality is makes people very interested in, in using them. So now the, to pivot, uh, if I can, a little bit on the healthcare M&A side, which is, uh, you know, what I, what I mentioned earlier is, is, is close to my practice. 
uh, there's definitely an increased investment in this space. Uh, so, so obviously investors have taken note of the growth that I was just mentioning earlier and uh, digital health investment around the world, I think hit an all-time high of 57.2 billion in uh, funding in 2021. And, you know, in part that was fueled by rapidly developing need to uh, provide, you know, digital solutions and, and certain delivery models to patients during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, <clears throat> particularly in my practice, we've seen a, a, a tremendous deal flow in the healthcare sector that has really just been nonstop uh, since I would say uh, a few years back. Um, and, and I'd say uh, there was a little, maybe a little low earlier this year, but it's certainly ramped up again. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of deals in the, the health IT space really, really pick up. Um, and, and it's not just the, the, the total investment that's growing, I think. And another, another thing that, that I've seen is that there's just larger deals at higher elevate at higher elevate valuations are, are also something that, that I've seen. Um, and I think I've saw a report estimated a 195% increase in valuations from 2020 to 2021, which is just, um, just amazing. Uh, and, and another thing I've noticed is it's really just a seller's market too. It, you know, the multiples have been very high in, in terms of valuations, even these younger, smaller companies have com- continued to command higher multiples, uh, earlier in their life cycle of businesses. I think some people can maybe uh, say that's in relation in relation to SPACs and stuff like that, but it's also not heard of to see, you know, uh, 20X or more EBITDA multiples. Um, this has really just, just been a, a hot area. Yeah, certainly, uh, certainly from that investment perspective, it has. And, and it also, I'm, I'm not sure if everyone's aware, but as the, uh, under the promoting interoperability uh, rules that came out a little while back that are now being implemented, uh, causing providers and payers in particular to implement APIs on uh, that allow access uh, to patients and policyholders to their um, personal health records, et cetera, through third-party applications. One of the, the object, stated objectives of that regulation was to increase the competition amongst third-party app. Uh, health app providers for that uh, specific functionality. So there's you know, clearly from a from a, a investment perspective, there's a lot of interest in this area, as you pointed out, Rob. From a, a public policy perspective, there's interest in promoting um, the use of of health apps, certainly in in the area of uh, providing better access to medical information on the part of patients. Um, also, of course, telehealth, which has become in no small part accelerated, I think, because of the, the um, COVID situation is, is also growing. And, you know, and it's interesting, while that's all happening, and there's all this activity, there's been some recent um, studies, and one particular I saw from Accenture that suggests that adoption, however, may be stalling. And one of the things that um, surprised me in particular was adoption in that 18 to 34 year old age group, which is one where you would think there would be the most adoption from a technology perspective. And of course, you know, one of the, the big issues cited by uh, that group in that study was concerns around security and privacy. And, and <clears throat> that too, I think, excuse me, is not surprising uh, given all of the, the press that we've seen recently with uh, healthcare breaches and, and just breaches in general associated with security. So I think that uh, you know, for, for the investment to pay off for the goals and objectives from a 
public policy perspective to be successful, um, we're, we're going to have to to get a grip on all of this, certainly from a legal structure perspective. Uh, Rob, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what that existing legal framework is that would be applicable to the health application uh, environment? Sure. So, so I think there, there are three uh, I guess pillars of the, of the framework applicable to, to these health apps. Uh, one is HIPAA or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Uh, and, and under HIPAA, you know, it's the Office for Civil Rights uh, within the Department of U.S. Health and uh, Human Services, which enforces these HIPAA rules. Um, and generally, you know, HIPAA protects privacy and security of certain health information and uh, requires certain entities provide notification of health information breaches. Uh, the other is the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, the FDA enforces uh, this act, and which regulates basically, you know, safety and effectiveness of medical devices uh, and certain mobile uh, medical apps. Not, you know, not just food and drugs, um, <clears throat> but also these devices. And then there's the Federal Trade Commission Act. Uh, the FTC enforces the FTC Act. Uh, which essentially uh, prohibits deceptive or unfair acts or practices affecting commerce. Uh, and this includes those relating to privacy, uh, data security, and those you know, involving false or misleading claims about apps safety or performance, things like that. So when I was kind of describing the, the topic area in particular, I pointed out that, uh, you know, application users can can get access to or provided uh, by their by those applications through a number of different sources including their providers business associates third-party developers etc um, I did that for a reason and the reason was to set up this question <laughs> so can you tell us you know why is that important why does it matter uh, from where a, a user might get their application oh, yeah well well played John uh, the, the source of the information uh, generally you know, determines which of the regimes I just mentioned uh, apply. So, you know, at, at a high level, uh, if the source of the information is a covered entity, you know, such as your doctor uh, or that doctor's business associate, uh, then it would this would likely fall under HIPAA's purview. Uh, if the source of the information is from a third-party app developer or another party that's not subject to HIPAA, then the FTC's rules would, would generally cover this information. Uh, and then, you know, Third, if the information is from a provider or from a medical device manufacturer related to the use of an app, um, that would meet the definition of a medical device uh, per the FDA, then uh, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act uh, would, would apply to the app. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that HIPAA is probably the, the most familiar of those to, to folks on listening to the AHLA uh, podcast. Certainly, you know, the security, privacy, breach notification rules come into play there. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, the, from whom one obtains their application plays a big role in, in whether or not HIPAA applies. Uh, certainly, if you're getting that directly from a provider or a business associate on behalf of a provider and that app contains electronic protected health information, you're going to run into a situation where, where HIPAA applies. One of the kind of nuances around that, I mentioned earlier, the, um, the new rules which require the implementation of APIs. Um, to provide access to, to patient records and, and uh, insurance records, that kind of information, depending on whether we're talking about the provider or the payer APIs and, and the um, need to make those APIs accessible to third-party app providers. If, if I, as a patient, 
um, get my third-party app from an app developer that's not acting on behalf of a provider uh, or isn't a provider themselves, which is another interesting question, but um, is not a provider themselves, then interestingly, once that, that EPHI gets into my app, it no longer uh, is governed by HIPAA, which is, I think, an important distinction. It'll probably cause a lot of confusion in the, in the consumer uh, world, but the, the obligation of the provider to protect that information according to the HIPAA rules ends when that data crosses over into that third-party application. So something that uh, I think folks need to be um, aware of, certainly on, on that little bit of a distinction. Uh, Rob, you mentioned the FTC. How does the FTC play in, in this a little bit more? Uh, yeah, um, and, and I think that's a very important distinction. I think it extremely helpful um, but anyway, so on the FTC, uh, so the Federal Trade Commission Act was adopted in 1914 and under the act, uh, as currently amended, the, the FTC is, you know, acting as the nation's consumer protection agency is empowered, as I mentioned before, you know, among other things, other things to prevent unfair methods of competition and unfair deceptive acts or practices interfecting commerce, um, this is under section five of the FTC act and the FTC can prescribe rules defining acts or practices that it deems unfair or deceptive, right. And establishing requirements uh, designed to pre prevent such acts. Uh, and then under section six, they, they're able to, you know, is the enforcement part where they're, they're able to seek monetary redress or other relief for, for conduct that's, you know, injurious to, con to, to consumers. So basically in a nutshell, the FTC act, uh, prohibits companies from misleading their consumers or engaging in any unfair practices that may harm consumers. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the FTC enforcement of deceptive act or unfair practices uh, includes those relating to privacy and data security and, and those involving certain claims about, let's say, uh, a health app's safety or performance. So that's where the, you know, the FTC kind of jumps in. So uh, I think, you know, most relevant to, to our discussion today is, you know, in September of, of last year, 2021, uh, the FTC issued a policy statement clarifying that uh, its health breach notification rule applies to makers of health apps and connected devices and other similar products. Uh, so taking a step back for a second, that the health breach notification rule itself was issued more than a decade ago. So that's not necessarily new, but this policy statement is. And so the FTC noted that the explosion of health apps, as, as we were discussing earlier, and connected devices makes its requirements uh, with them really important to FTC's oversight going forward. Uh, and under, under their statement, the FTC advised uh, mobile health apps uh, and their developers, I mean, to examine their obligations under the, the health uh, breach notification rule. So uh, to get a little technical for a second, uh, you, you, and when people look at the rule, they might see the terms thrown out there. So the rule really applies to uh, when these under the rule, a vendor of personal health records, or you'll, you'll hear me say PHRs, uh, which is essentially the, the health app developers themselves. Uh, it then applies to PHR related entities, which is the company that sends or receives uh, health app data uh, such as the, a company that offers the fitness tracker. And again, just, just want to stop and note for a second that this is, you know, these are entities that are not already covered by HIPAA. So FTC is, you know, more or less filling the gaps. 
Uh, and then third is uh, the third party service provider for you know vendors of PHR or PHR related entities. And so these are essentially businesses that provide billing, debt collection, other you know storage services related to that the health information of such entities. I think it's you know for those who are familiar with the, the HIPAA space, very similar to to like a business associate under HIPAA. Right. I think you mentioned the fitness tracker. Is that the kind of an app that would fall under the FTC enforcement typically, or is there an example that um, that you could give that folks might be somewhat familiar with that would fall under FTC enforcement? Yep. Yep. So, so that that's exactly right. That's one of one of the examples. I think even maybe FTC points it out as one of the examples. Um, but in short, uh, the many companies that you know collect people's health information, whether it's the fitness tractor, a diet app, connected blood pressure cuff, or something something similar, those aren't covered by HIPAA, would fall under FTC enforcement. Um, so I think specifically the FTC considers uh, apps covered by the health breach notification rule, uh, specifically the, the FTC describes as when it's capable of drawing information from multiple sources, such as through a combination of consumer uh, inputs uh, and APIs. So I think one example FTC provides is that uh, an app is covered if it collects information directly from consumer, but also has the the technical capacity to draw information through an API that enables uh, syncing with, say, a fitness tracker, as we've been using um, before. Similarly, though, the app that draws information from multiple sources is also covered um, even if the information comes from only one source. So for the health information, I mean, so for example, if say a a blood glucose monitor uh, application draws information, uh, the health information from the consumer's inputted blood sugar levels from one source, but then takes their non-health related information, say contacts or uh, date dates from the the calendar. Uh, it's also covered under the rule. Great, and I'd probably be remiss if I didn't mention at this time anyone who's would is interested in perhaps an even deeper dive into the FTC health breach notification rule and their their recent statements in regard to the interpretation of the application of that rule. There was a previous AHLA podcast that that uh, I had the for- good fortune of doing with. Ty Cam from Microsoft and Adam Green from uh, Davis Wright and Tremaine that I would would recommend uh, if 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 this is the kind of thing that uh, you enjoy hearing even more about and uh, and so thanks Robin and we mentioned of course the the FDA and and there's going to be cases obviously where specific and I think this may even become more common specifically where an app is intended to to diagnose cure mitigate treat or prevent a disease and of course it has to have both the functionality but also the intended use. Uh, to diagnose, cure, mitigate, or treat or prevent a disease. And I'll, I'll give you an example of why that's important. But if that's the case, then then it starts to fall into the FDA and becomes a medical device. And, and uh, then we get into a question of the risk to the, to the user. Uh, if it's minimal risk, the FDA doesn't necessarily enforce that. Uh, but if there's a potential significant risk to the individual, then you're going to fall into the regulation, regulated medical device rules. And, and I I mentioned it's not just the functionality, but the in, intended use. I'll give you this, and I think this is still the case with the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch has an EKG functionality that Apple spent significant uh, time to get approved as a medical device um, for uh, software embedded in a medical device for 
for that functionality specifically of the Apple Watch. However, they also have an oxygen monitor functionality within the watch that they didn't get approved. There's probably a number of reasons why they didn't that, but didn't do that. But uh, one of the reasons cited is, well, that's just for fun and wellness and not to be uh, relied on. So I'm not sure that the users are necessarily aware, very aware of that distinction, but but certainly um, comes into an inter- some interesting questions about whether or not something needs to go through the, the medical device uh, process. And if you're interested more, there was recently, um, recently as in the early last month, uh, new guidance that came, draft guidance that came out from the FDA on cybersecurity and medical devices, quality system considerations and content pre-marketing submissions. I think that's still open for comment right now for those uh, who are interested in, in that uh, particular area. Rob, the, you know, one of the, I guess, the big concerns, and we mentioned this in passing now, I think throughout the the discussion today is is a situation of a breach, and certainly from a consumer perspective, you know that's one of the things I, I think probably uh, is in the back of their mind, or is coming more and more in the back of folks' mind is what what are the rules regarding a breach in, of a health app? You know, obviously, you don't want to get to that point, but uh, if if it if it comes to that, there it's important to kind of understand the. The requirements, uh, if there's a breach, you know whether the the app subject to HIPAA or you know the FTC. So, uh, for for the FTC, under the rules requirements, uh, the vendors of PHR and PHR related entities, they basically must must notify U.S. consumers and the FTC, and in certain cases, the media, um, if there's been a breach of unsecured identifiable health information. And if not, there's, you know, there's potential for civil, civil penalties for, for such violations. Uh, the rule goes into specifics in terms of timing, method, and constant notification. But just to give you, a, you know, a little, little, little detailed teaser, I don't want to just leave you hanging with the only super high level. Um, so if the breach is uh, experienced, there's a notification to each affected person. Uh, I think the standards with, without unreasonable delay and within 60 calendar days after the breach is discovered, uh, and if the breach involves 500 people or more, you must notify the FTC as soon as possible. And then there's a 10 day business days after discovering a breach uh, uh, requirement. So, but if the, the information is fewer than 500 individuals, you have a little bit more time here. You basically, you need to send the same standard form to the FTC uh, along with um, other forms documenting any other breaches during that same calendar year uh, involving fewer than 500 people. And that all must be done within 60 calendar days following uh, the end of that calendar year. I know that's it's, it's kind of a lot, but if you go onto the rule itself, I think uh, it, it lays it out nicely. And there's also um, great resources that the FTC has. Uh, then there's also, as I mentioned before, the media. So if you meet that uh, 500 residents uh, or more threshold, especially of a particular state, the District of Columbia or you know other U.S. territory, without unreasonable delay and within 60 days after the breach is discovered, there's a requirement to notify prominent media outlets um, ser- serving the the relevant uh, uh, impacted individuals. So, for from HIPAA. Uh, which again, a lot of the audience may be more familiar with this is, you know, following a breach of unsecured protected health information, uh, covered entities must provide notification to the affected individuals, uh, OCR, and in certain circumstances to the media. So a lot of similarities with the FTC uh, breach notification rule. 
And uh, in addition, business associates must notify their covered entities if breach occurs or by the business associate uh, at or by business associate. So this is particularly relevant because a lot of the the health app developers are going to fit into that business associate category to the extent uh, there's the relationship with the the covered entity, uh, John, as you laid out uh, er earlier. Um, So in terms of requirements, there's a lot of similarities in in terms of uh, that, that type of detail. So the, the timing requirement for business associate would be, you know, no later than 60 days following the discovery of a breach. Um, and then for the covered entities, uh, if a breach uh, affects 500 more individuals, see same, same type of deal here, um, they must notify uh, OCR without unreasonable, delay, without, without unreasonable delay and in no case later than uh, 60 days following the breach. Um, and if less than 500 individuals, uh, it's a similar type of you know, annual, annual notification where the report breaches affecting fewer of those individuals uh, no later than 60 days after the end of that calendar year that those breaches are discovered. So you'll see a lot of uh, parallels between the two, as I mentioned. Uh, and then uh, for, for more than 500 individuals, the same, same type of deal with, with notifying uh, the media. Certainly, certainly breaches are, are, well, they're increasing, obviously, and uh, generally speaking, and and certainly in particular in healthcare, it's uh, becoming a a growing problem, I think, for for everyone in the industry. I saw an article this morning about how quickly class action lawsuits are being filed after a a breach, and there was even um, a suggestion of it being some sort of modern day ambulance chasing, which is something I hadn't heard in a while. And the uh, legal profession, but you know, obviously the uh, developers of these apps need to take note of that, as well as the the providers uh, and and payer community that's uh, providing apps to their patients and and policyholders. So certainly something we need to be aware of. One of the we work a lot with with um, health IT digital health companies, developer of health applications to. Uh, be compliant, but also to make sure that they're minimizing the risk to the of a breach to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the information contained within an app. And, and typically, um, you're better off if you start with that intention in mind as you're developing your app. Oftentimes, uh, unfortunately, folks will develop the app, they'll have a good idea for the app, they'll build the app, and then try to uh, build security into it later. And that's usually a less effective and, and more expensive approach to this. So uh, for our, for us, when we're working with uh, developers of health apps, certainly we, we encourage them to build security into the system development lifecycle. So build security in from the start. Um, you, we recommend, of course, that they understand the, the remaining risk that exists. Um, that's a requirement um, for HIPAA compliance, certainly, but, but generally speaking, a good practice from a security perspective as well. And to the extent that we have risks that um, exceed what, what we believe to be acceptable, we want to introduce additional safeguards or controls to further reduce that risk. And ultimately, uh, we want to test that application as well to make sure that uh, the safeguards and controls that we have implemented are operating effectively and as we uh, intended them uh, to do. And and if we do that, and and we kind of set about from the start to do that, we can really minimize the risk of a breach from these healthcare um, health applications. And, And as we mentioned, that's going to be key I think to their further adoption uh, by the consumer, by the public, and uh, further success of the 
investments in this area. So, uh, Rob, any any uh, tips you can give for folks who are looking for more information uh, generally about the the rules, regulations, et cetera, around health apps? Yep. Um, and, and I'll also, uh, it's interesting that you point out the, uh, the, the, the privacy litigation is the new, yeah. you know, ambulance chasing maybe in uh, a law school, they'll start switching from Paul's graph to uh, security <laughs> breach type cases. I mean, maybe that's something a few years down the road, but um, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. In terms of resources, there's a lot out there. I think what's, what's nice with, you know, the FTC, OCR and FDA is that they provide a lot of helpful tools and resources to try to uh, help uh, businesses comply uh, with their requirements. So, so I think, you know, some of this stuff may be, you know, daunting or, or worrying and it shouldn't be because, you know, there are resources and the ability to, to address these requirements accordingly. Um, so one, one great place, I think, to start is the FTC has an interactive tool that, that, that I really like, which sort of acts like a, a decision tree to see which regime uh, applies. Uh, and you could, you could go to the FTC's website. I think I have it here, uh, www.ftc.gov slash business dash guidance slash resources slash mobile dash health dash apps dash interactive tool. Um, so, but, but if you, if you Google, uh, FTC breach notification, uh, interactive tool or FTC interactive tool, it should co- pop up right in, right in your search bar, but that's probably one of the best places to start. Cause it really helps kind of, if you have any questions being like, well, does it apply to me? That's always a, a great place to start. Rob, any last thoughts or, or, uh, ideas you'd like to, to leave the audience with? Um, I would, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, definitely watch this space more. I think it's it's interesting what it's going to do is, you know, as, as we discussed earlier, there was a big explosion in this type of adoption, followed by, in, you know, increased investment in the space. And then there's, you know, there's, as you mentioned, there's some flattening out. So it's interesting that maybe as this market kind of corrects itself, there'll be some uh, stability or, you know, there may maybe be some winners and losers in terms of which apps survive, which ones don't. And, and ultimately I think one of the apps that are going to survive and, and the sector itself are going to be those that uh, really take these regulatory regimes seriously and uh, take the, the privacy and data protection of uh, the, the consumers seriously and, and uh, addresses them accordingly. Yeah. I, th- I think there's a, Certainly a, a sudden, it seems as if, a, I'm not sure what's a sudden increase in proposed legislation, but the legislation being proposed seems to be taken a lot more seriously, uh, just broadly around uh, breach notifications and, you know, of course, the private HIPAA privacy rules being uh, re-looked at again. And so there is a, certainly a lot of activity around um, health applications, uh, health information uh, protections, generally speaking, around secure cybersecurity in particular um, across the the country right now, both at the state and federal level. So it it is certainly a dynamic environment for uh, folks trying to operate in this space. And and again, encourage uh, if you're you're looking at uh, being an app developer in healthcare, um, certainly want to be aware of these things uh, earlier. Uh, and sooner so that you can make sure that as you're developing your solution that you're uh, 
um, addressing all of these concerns, both from a security and as well as a compliance perspective. So I certainly have, that's all I have, Rob. I, if you don't have anything else, uh, maybe we, we uh, close this out. No, yeah, that was very well said. Um, so great. So thank you all for, for joining us on another AHLA podcast. I uh, really appreciate it and uh, appreciate you taking the time here with us today. Thanks everyone for, for listening in. This was a lot of fun and uh, thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.